Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast, as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with one of the greatest base dealers in Major League history, Vince Coleman. Alright, let's do this! And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, I'm joined by one of the best base stealers of all time. He led the league six times, is a member of the St. Louis Cardinals Hall of Fame. Ladies and gentlemen, Vince Coleman. Vince, thanks for coming on the program. Hey, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. You got it. Uh, toughest catcher for Vince Coleman to run on. Entire career. You know, all the tough catchers are tough. You know, they receive the ball quickly, and they get rid of it. But, you know, my biggest asset was that I always worked on my reading the pitchers and, and the leads and the jump. So, you know, the, every pitcher I felt have a flaw, tips and tendencies, things that <clears throat> I put a lot of pride into working out, and I pride myself every day how to perfect my jump. So it didn't matter who was pitching or who was catching. And my job was to go out there and try to perfect my greatest lead, my greatest jump, and the tempo of the timing was perfect, then there was no matter who was catching was going to throw me out. That's interesting because it's such a different facet of the game. It wasn't a, a, a part of my game that was, you know, my, my I, I, what the word is, is uh, it wasn't really in my repertoire. You know, I was one of those guys that Vince Coleman's on second base. I'm going to get the back end of that steal when you steal third. And I'm going to look at you and give you a smile and maybe a clap. Hey, right. got another bag for me. Uh, but I was always, I was always, you know, I, I looked at the guys that I played with through the years. We were teammates one year. The guys that just really had that knack for stealing bases. And I was always a little bit envious. I was a real good base runner. But, right. you know, that, right. that, right. to steal that right. bag, and, and especially the guys like yourself, like Ricky, that could take over a game. You could lead off the ninth right. inning with a walk. You steal second well, and third right in their face when everybody in that stadium knew you were going. As soon as they start throwing over to me three or four times, I'm staying put because it's just I don't, that's not, that's not well, my well, thing. That's not my thing. But well, I love well, watching guys like you do that. Well, there, there are the guys that stole bases, and then there's a base fielder. So those are two Without different categories, you know. So guys that – you know, it's only, in the history of baseball, there's only been four guys over to steal over 100 bases. You know, Ricky Henderson, Maury Wills, Lou Brock, you know, and, and myself. So if you look at those guys' mentality, they go back to when they were a kid, you know, coming up through high school, coming up through college. We all was football players. So the instinct was not to let the guy hit you <laughs> or run away from them. So those instincts that you had that carried over from the other sport as being a football player – because you did know I did go to college on a football scholarship, so everybody refused to believe that but understand that. But I was a running back. I was a cornerback. You know, so the instincts as a, a defensive player, as a running back, you know, was kind of the trait and the competitiveness, you know. So every time I got on base, it was, it was about competing. And it's just like a tough pitcher up there. I got to know the fundamentals on how to stay back, how to stay behind the ball, and having back control or hitting it another way. So it was just another form of me. You, as a great hitter, you knew how to hit the ball the other way. You know how to read the pitches, you know, and hit a home run when you needed one. So 
So for me, I knew all the tips and tendencies that I needed to know, all the flaws the pitchers may have. I did a lot of homework, and a lot of homework was put into dissecting pitchers. So it wasn't a pitcher back in the 80s that I didn't know. And to my advantage, I was blessed by Don Blassingame. I don't know if you know, you know Don. I mean, you know, he, I think he played with your dad over in the Phillies, you know, back in the day. But he was a guy that was, he was a student of the game of how to dissect pitchers. So every pitcher had a flaw. It was in his hands, it was in the head, it was his knees or his feet. So I refused to let anyone say that I stole bases because I was fast. That helped. But when you have that advantage of going into a ball game, knowing that the pitcher had a flaw of how he held his hands, how he turned his feet, how he dipped his chin like Tom Browning, a fan of glove, like Danny Nagel, uh, 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 Fernando Valenzuela, uh, 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 Sutcliffe. I mean, you know, I can go to the list of on and on and on of guys that had these flaws. So when the Cardinals came into a ball game and we stole 350 bases my, my, my rookie year, every one of us knew going into this game when we got on base that we had a tip on this pitcher for the base stealing standpoint. So it made it that much fun. It was that much fun when we got in there. And, you know, you played with – I was blessed by playing with one of the greatest managers ever, Whitey Herzog, that allowed us to play the game as kids. You know, his only rule that Whitey had was just to show up on time and run every fly ball out. That was his only rule. Other than that, you police yourself, you play the game like, like – and you respected the game and you played the game hard and you became a championship team. Yeah, those Cardinals teams. It was a different game back then, Vince. It was you guys did run the base. You're constantly putting pressure on defense. I, I love to see a little bit that come back to today's game. I think we've gotten a little far away from it, and we'll talk about that a little later in the podcast. Something you did bring up that's interesting to the people out there listening is you mentioned base stealers, and I, I don't know how you put it, but there's the there's the base there's the guys that steal bases, and then there's the base stealers. There's definitely as a guy that played a long time and, and played alongside a lot of base uh, base stealers and guys that stole bases. There's definitely a difference, and right. you know, the guys I played with. Oh, how many base? How many bases steal? Thirty five. You know, okay, whatever. But can I count on you when I need you to steal a base? Nope. That's when Absolutely. you crawl, you hide, and nope. If it, if it gets turned up, that pressure gets turned up too much. Those guys, they 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 kind of out themselves as who are the guys that just steal bases versus the base stealers. Really interesting concept. Uh, you grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, if, if I'm not mistaken. Vince Coleman, yes, what were you like as a little kid? Little Vince. As a kid coming up in Jacksonville, you know, you was uh, a mischievous kid. You got in trouble all the time. You know, he was in the parks all day playing baseball and football, fending for yourself. I was the only child, so it was always like, you know, you had to go out there and prove yourself. There was a lot of great athletes coming through our, our neighborhood. I mean, it, and so football was the premier sport that you had to identify yourself as a, a, a manhood. You know, baseball, you played basketball, but you play, and, and played baseball. But, you know, the, the macho, if you go back, you know, by in Florida, you know, you know that you go to Texas or South Carolina or Florida as well. You know, you see all the big powerhouse schools but down there. Uh, but, you know, me coming up with the kids, and that's all you idolize is guys that was in the pros, uh, high school. And, and a lot of guys that went to my high school continued on to go pro. So Bob Hayes was from my neighborhood. 
you know, Dallas Cowboys. So I was a Dallas Cowboys fan growing up, and all I wanted to do is be a Dallas Cowboy football player. That was my only only dream. But if you look at so many kids that Don Gaffney and Derek Gaffney, they went to Florida, then they went on to play in the NFL. Um, Harold Carmichael, Kenny Burroughs, Booby Clock. I'm out dating you. I know you don't know who some of these guys are. But Lito Shepard, Bernie Coles, uh, Brian Dawkins, you probably can relate uh, to Bar Gaffney. You know, we, we all came from the same park, Scott Park, in Jacksonville, Florida. So you was this guy that idolized talent, speed, um, consistency day in and day out. And when I was given the opportunity to go to Florida and m um, as a football player, um, to play for Florida and m and, and, and to compete at that level and knowing that my skill set was going to be making the team as a wide receiver, cornerback, punter, place kicker. So I kind of like did it all, you know. And, and, and then I was just fortunate enough to play at Florida and m with Hank Aaron's son, Larry Aaron, and and Bill Lucas. Bill Lucas was the first black general manager for the Braves. So he had a son that was there at Florida and m And so that's how I kind of got discovered. It was my junior year when Buck O'Neill was a scout for the Chicago Cubs, and he came around. I stole seven bases against Albany State. And after the game, he came to me and gave me this three-by-five card, and he said, I want you to fill out this card because once you get into the major leagues, young man, I want you to put – 1961 is your birth date and and because I'm gonna buy you a year because once you turn 35 in the major league they start looking at you funny you know this is my junior year I'm 19 years old but Buck O'Neill was the came to me and gave me the inspiration he told me at that time that you could be as good as Lou Brock did I know who Lou Brock was not really you know I kind of followed Ricky Henderson and you know and Tim Raines was from Stanford Florida Sanford Sanford Florida and, you know, he was playing for Montreal. So then I kind of like, you know, paying a little bit more attention to baseball and, and, and not knowing the difference. And I'll be honest with you, between American League and National League, I didn't know. I knew who Pete Rose was. I knew who Rock Saru was. I knew who Tim Raines was. So I kind of like when I woke up in the morning, I read the paper and see what they was doing, you know. But at that time, you could have told me that I wasn't going to be an NFL football player. And so in 1982, I was, wasn't drafted by the football team, but I was invited to Washington Redskins camp. And I go to Washington Redskins camp, and I ran the fastest time there in camp in 1982 in minicamp. This was in May. And so Bobby Bethard, the GM, told me that he was not going to allow me to punt. And at the time, I had a punter. My cousin was a punter for the – the Minnesota Vikings, and I thought it would have been great to have two African-American punters in the NFL. And he denied me from punting. And I'm there for three days. He wanted me to learn the route. So I'm there with Joe Theismann and, and Riggins and the Smurfs and Charlie Brown and Art Monk. And I'm running routes, and I twist my ankle, and I call my mom. She said, well, maybe that's a blessing in disguise. Maybe you should just – because the June draft was coming up the next month. Uh, the Major League Draft was coming up in June the next month. Now, I was drafted the year before in the Phillies in the 20th round my junior year, but my mom would not let me sign. Not that I wanted to sign anyway because baseball wasn't even on my mind. You know, but at that time the next year, I got drafted in the 10th round by the Cardinals, and the rest was history. But I credit Bobby Bethard for making me a Major League Baseball player because if he had allowed me to punt, during the time I was there at minicamp for the Washington Redskins in 1982, 
Vince Coleman would have never been a, a, a final uh, Major League Baseball player. That's amazing because it's, um, you know, I, uh, doing my research on Vince Coleman, I, I know all about your football prowess, but I had no idea that it was your passion and that's what you always want to do. And baseball was just kind of an extra. You were setting uh, stolen base records at, at Florida A&M and you, you won a division, I think a division one, two A championship fo- on the football yeah. field. On the football, 82, exactly. Yeah. yeah. 82, you go into the draft. Like you said, you're a 10th rounder with the St. Louis Cardinals. You start, and this is when it starts, you know, come on, Vince. I'm a, you know me, I'm not a base stealer, but, but I look at numbers and all of a sudden the making Redbirds, I said, he stole 145 bases. It it made me tired reading that. Uh, For people out there, that just doesn't happen these days. It, It probably didn't happen those days. I've never heard of 145. I know, you know, your first, your first six years in the big leagues, you, you led the league in your first three, you stole over a hundred bases. That's mind boggling enough. But when, when you get to the mid ones, 145, so you start in 83, you steal 145, you stole 101 at 84 at triple a, uh, you kind of knew that your ticket to the big leagues was being that guy. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'll go back a little bit when, when we talk about college, you know, so college, you know, uh, let me know that, I kicked the game-winning field goal and beat University of Miami in 1979. And then, so that's how I claimed the fame when I was in college. Florida and 34, a 34-yarder, I think it was. Yeah, 34, yeah, yeah. So I just, <laughs> I just wanted to, the, 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 the put, to throw that out there just so it don't be missed and overlooked. Who's ever listening? Whoever cares? You know, that's the who cares department. But No, I love it. Go, I love you it. Go, you, you, you go back to, to, to I'm drafted, right? And so I go to Johnson City, Tennessee, and George Kissel. George Kissel is the god of baseball in the Cardinals organization. And we're halfway through the season, and I'm just this right-handed hitter, you know, with a wooden bat in my hand for the first time. And I'm out every day bleeding with blisters, trying to figure this thing out. And um, I'm in this league now with – with, with, with Terry Pellington, Jose Rio, Doc Gooden, Kirby Puckett, and these guys are great. And I'm looking like, man, I'm playing baseball every day, and I got to play to that standard? There, I have no shot at fucking playing in the major leagues. You kidding me? You know, I'm getting on. I'm stealing bases, you know, when I can. I walk here and there. I'm hitting about 240. You know, but that felt like those guys hitting three. Kirby Puckett hitting three fifty. You know, and Terry Tones is hitting three fifty. He get moved up the to to, uh, to 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 St. Petersburg. You know, he get moved out of it. Stan Javier. I'm with Stan Javier. He's my teammate, and he's amazing switcher. A seventeen year old switcher. You know, come out of the. I'm like, oh my god, and he's chill. I'm like, man, I have no shot. One day, George Kissel, uh, farm director, came in and he said, "Hey, young man." If you want to play in the major leagues of White Herzog, we're going to have to teach you how to switch it. And like, and they say, well, you have anything against that? I say, no, I'm excited. I want to just get on. He says, all I need you to do is get on base. If you get on base, you know, you can change the game. So, man, we came out the next day. We just, with this pipe, and I swung it 100 times, you know. Then I started just soft tossing and playing pepper, hitting the ball the other way. I got into the game. The and two days later, and I hit three balls to shortstop from the left hand side of the plate, 
and I beat them out. By the end of the, about a month later, my batting average went from 240 to 310. I mean, it was amazing. So I go to the instruction league, and now I got to face guys throwing sliders. I was like, oh, my God. So George is like, well, we got a bunt. All we got to do is work on your butt and we get you on and continue to learn how to just eliminate the whole right side of the field. All we're going to do is just work on playing pepper with the shortstop, pepper with the shortstop. And that's what developed, gave me the opportunity to be on base. So when I went to A-ball, we had a game plan. Lord Mayor was our mad manager, and Tim Bocock was our spat at second, and, and PV was batting third. They say, our job, once Vince gets on, we take it. If he makes our job easier, he's going to get fastballs. We're going to get fastballs. We're going to take the first one. He goes steal second. We may bunt the second one over so you get a third base. We, if it's a ball, then we're going to st- take two pitches. And I steal third base. And that's how – and I was – it was amazing that I could just hit the ball to shortstop and beat it out. I'm on base three, four times a night. And there was no way that I had worked on my, my craft when I'm talking about tips and tendencies. I learned that when I was in A-ball from Don Blassingay. And, you know, these pitchers coming out of high school and college had no idea. Their creature habits of the tips I had learned that they was tipping everything before they delivered it. I can tell when you was coming to first or when you was going home. And that's how easy it was. And a lot of these guys, um, like Tom Browning, uh, Zane Smith, um, Joe Heskett, all within the minor leagues with me. Uh, 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 Myers, Randy Myers. And, and so when these guys followed me from A-ball to AAA, I knew they tips and tendencies, you know? And it just became a habit of mine to study it. I had a camera in the dugout just for me, just for base dealers when I got to the big leagues. Over with St. Louis Cardinals, the first base shot, just for pitchers. So it made me look like a genius. So base stealing became an art of mine that I put my whole heart and mind and soul into that gave me the confidence that I could steal on anybody. That Every picture that came up there I had a, a, a tips and, and tendencies and flaws against that I can dissect them and, and, and pass that on to my teammates. So, Brad, if you was a teammate of mine, you knew going into that game what Tom Browning was doing, um, uh, what Jim Deshades, uh, Bruce Hurts, um, Fernando Valenzuela. I had them all down to the teeth. And you would be – you could – and that made e- hitting easy for you because you knew once your teammate was on, they were getting fastballs. And now Tommy Herb batted 318 with nine RBIs with – I mean, he had a 118 RBIs with nine home runs. And uh, because either myself, uh, Willie McGee, uh, uh, Ajay Smith was on base. So just imagine, Brad, if I was hitting in front of you and I'm on base. You, you hit all the home runs. Oh, you're, hit, you're, you're my dream because I'll take a pitch. I'll take strike one. And if you're at second, you steal third. I'll take strike two. Because now I, all I got to do is all I got to do is touch it to get that RBI and to get that, right. that that run for my team. You mentioned Stan Javier; he was also a teammate of mine, and yeah. he was one of those guys. He too, you know, Stan wasn't a big base dealer, but when you talk right. about you talk about tips and tells that the other pitchers have, Stan right. Javier right. was right. one of those guys. He was all booty. You want to know what he's what he's got. I right, love exactly. because I wasn't right. one of those guys, you know, and the guys on my team, I'd always, 
gravitate towards the the guys like Vince Coleman who know, hey, Booney, you want to know what this guy's got? He's fanning his glove. He's doing this for a break. Right, 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 you're doing right. it. You're exactly. doing it from a running perspective, but it also is going to help the hitters. That, that's great. Absolutely. That's great stuff. And the great teams, even in 2022, like I said, it's different than 1984, 85 when you're coming up. But the great right. teams still do that. And you see them in the dugout talking to each other, everybody in the lineup, talking to that next guy in the lineup, talking to that next guy. Um, you right. get to the big leagues in 85. You mentioned Whitey Herzog, uh, Willie McGee, Ozzy. We've had Ozzy on the program. Joaquin Andoar was a, was oh, a yeah. uh, teammate of yours. Right. TP, Terry Pendleton, great hitter, went on to the Braves. Um, that was a great time for the Cardinals. You guys were on that turf. You guys were running. Like you said, your your rookie year, you guys stole three 350 bases. Uh, you were the unanimous rookie of the year in 1985. You ended up going to the World Series. Um, anyone on that team take Vince Coleman under their wing? I mean, we all did. I mean, you know, they, they, they sort of like um, – when you came there, Whitey's biggest thing was that, and a lot of people don't understand, and I tell the story, is that um, Whitey did not feed us after ball games. So, meaning that there was no spreads. After home ball games, there was no spread. Whitey wanted you to go home to your wife. He said, let your wife cook. You get out of the locker room, go home, be with your wife. So, with that being said, our schedule, if we was playing a day game, in St. Louis. The next day, you was going to be in L.A., right? Start a four-game series there. Normally, and then you know today's game, you travel right after the day game, correct? On a Sunday after the day game, you get on a plane, you fly right. to L.A. That was not the cardinal way. For six years while Whitey was there, if you played a day game on a Sunday – after the game, it was always scheduled that you was going to someone's house to have a barbecue. And it was my first year, you know what I mean? You know, so you had Whitey would always initiate the first one, then it was Ozzy, then it was Jack Clark or Tommy Hurt. So you always had someone's house to go to. So it was always, like, designated, and it was always, like, planned, and that was Whitey's approach because he felt that if we were together as a family, we would come close-knit as a team. So you asked who took, under, who took us under the wings, we all did. They all did, I should say, and we just gravitated to it. And that's the way, you know, we would go over there, we would get in the pool, we'd play ping pong, we you know, jump on the trampoline. I mean, we do whatever it takes to have that team bonding, and that's what Whitey culture was. And so ever to this day, to this day, Ozzy is one of my closest friends. We go into St. Louis. We were just there in St. Louis with Whitey, and, and we had a signing a week or two weeks ago. We was in St. Louis with Whitey and, and, and Ozzy and TP and uh, uh, Willie. And, and it was just like nothing never changed. We always go in every year for the honor of the Hall of Fame. You know, every year they have this ceremony now where – and they kind of like – piggyback from the the major league hall of fame but they do the cardinal hall of fame where they give everybody give you know whoever goes in that year get a red jacket you know so i was honored to be in that that group and that's an honor of mine and then you go in for opening day and there's nothing like opening day being in st louis playing in st louis the fans 
they make you feel like royalty. I mean, the way they treat you, the way you are being received. You, you've been through St. Louis. You know the fans come through there. My rookie year, my rookie year was when, when Pete Rose needed four hits to break the record. He came in for a three-game series. Every at-bat, Pete Rose came in, and he's a visitor. Coming into St. Louis, he got a standing ovation. That's how great the Cardinals fan base was. With that translated over to the team, that translated to the manager, the owners. I mean, you are so well-loved there, embraced there. It is nothing like playing. I can imagine playing for another team. You know, so that is one of the greatest cities to play, ever play for, St. Louis Cardinals. And I, I just look at that team. It looked like you guys were, were kind of that real real uh, tight-knit team. I mean, when you talk about you, you had you guys running all over the all over the place, you, Willie, and, and Ozzie. Yeah, and you had some muscle in the middle of that lineup with the Jack Clarks. Uh, right. Terry Pendleton was a big-time hitter, but, man, that looked like fun. You're playing on that turf, and, and you're a defense's nightmare because you're constantly oh, putting yeah. pressure on the defense. And it's just – it was a, con- a completely different brand of baseball that you guys – and, and I think under the, the, the umbrella of Whitey Herzog, that's the culture he wanted to create to just constantly put pressure and drive his opponents crazy. But, man, that was one way to win back then. Well, I, 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 we blame Whitey for, 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 well, when Augie Bush died in 89 and then um, 90, uh, we, we was coming to my uh, uh, free agent year and all of us was going to be Willie, when I say all of us, Terry, Willie, uh, myself, uh, Ken Bailey uh, was going to be free agents. And so Whitey uh, wanted a payroll at that time. All he wanted was to be $40 million. You know, hey, give me $40 million, I can keep my players. You know, but at the time, Augie Bush, uh, the third, did not. Um, he he wasn't a baseball guy like his dad was. You know, so he was more of a businessman. It would not allow for Whitey to have a a forty million dollar payroll, and Whitey felt that he couldn't compete with the league if he didn't have his horses, his guys. You know, he wanted all of us to stay together. You know, because Jack Clark had left to go to the Yankees, and Tommy Hurd was going. So the team was kind of dismantled. But he knew to stay competitive, he needed a payroll and pay, you know, just accordingly to, you know, at that time the salaries had jumped a little bit, but he wanted us to stay. But he had begged for it, and he didn't do it. So why did he quit like at um, All-Star break? And that's when they brought in Joe Torre. And, and I think at that time, you know, they were going through a youth movement. They brought up Todd Zeal, Ray Langford, a um, uh, few other guys, you know, but that was just, the, you know, the dismantling of the, of the championship team that we were accustomed to playing with. And so if Whitey had never left, then we would always stay in that culture of the tradition of, of the Cardinal uh, would have stayed there, um, and and I and I became a free agent, and, and you know it was like once you win, there's nothing like winning. And I thought, for me, I thought that going to a team that had the best pitching staff in baseball at the time, with the New York Mets, had Doc Gooden, David Cohn, uh, Ron Darling, uh, Sid Fernandez, Bobby Ojeda, 
I mean, Frank Ball, I mean, so who could not go on that team and be at the, at the catalyst? You know, in my mindset was that I'm going to, I'm going to score one run. I'm going to get you a run by myself every day. You know, so being on that type team, you know, I thought that was the biggest, uh, I would be a big attribute to that team. And that's the reason I left. That was the biggest regret I ever made. Biggest mistake, I should say, in baseball that changed the whole culture of the game. Because when you went there, it was not the same dynamics as what I was accustomed to that I had been raised with. Uh, when you walk into the locker room, you you check your egos in at the door. You had a formula that you wanted to stick with, a game plan, and you know how you complemented each other. And you knew that when you mirrored each other and you had the same focus that when you took that field, it was going to be just pulling for one another and you know you were going to win a championship game so it was it was very very tough time of leaving st louis at that time for me i want to go back to your rookie year you're you, you not only you're the rookie of the year unanimous rookie of the year you, you stole yeah. 110 <laughs> but you, you you stole 110 bases and you get to go to the world series this is all in your in your in your rookie campaign pretty cool pretty cool uh launch into the big league world you end up losing that World Series of the Royals. But tell me about the postseason. Tell me about the injury you had while you were stretching. Bizarre. I didn't know about it. But I want to hear it yeah. from you, how it all went down. This is – I, I forget. Was it the first I, round I, of the playoffs? I, I just, it's funny. I just saw you yesterday at the, uh, at the, at the, at the golf tournament at, at Pelican Hills there. And, uh, and, and who do I see walking off – after we was done, was Mike Socia. You know, Mike Socia sees me every time, and he gives me this great hug. <laughs> you know, and he's like, man, I, we, we almost had you. And I just think every time I see you, Vince, because he was there in the dugout when this happened, is that he felt so bad for me. And he was one of the guys that came over and carried me off on the stretcher. Um, so the story is that I'm standing on first base uh, between – on the field, on the foul line between first home plate and first base. So Terry Pilman and I, uh, we were just talking, and it began to drizzle and rain. And so Hal Amir, our batting cage at the time was in the left field corner, and Hal Amir was saying that, hey, I'll get your bat, so you guys just head on down there. And, and by that time, we talking, Terry Pilman and I, I just felt something rolling up my leg, and it didn't have a bell on it. And then it, you couldn't hear it and because if I'd have heard it, I'd have looked and saw it. And you know, it wasn't moving very fast. It was just the fact that once it trapped my shoes, it kind of knocked me down. And now I didn't know what was going on, you know. And so now, all next thing I know, I got this ton of weight on top of my leg that cracked my tibia. And they say that when you in fear of your life, you don't feel a thing. So I didn't feel a thing. Only thing I knew that it was something was rolling up to my hip, and then they stopped it. And I'm underneath, and I'm screaming and yelling, and everybody's running out, and now they're trying to lift it, and they could not lift it, you know. And so now they want to re-roll it back off, and that's when I felt the pain. And so I wasn't able to get up and stand up on it right away. They took me off. <clears throat> on the stretcher and take me back in the locker room. And, <laughs> and, the, and the funniest quote I heard was, uh, 
Bobby Forsh is my teammate. He comes in and I'm laying on the table and um, he said, Vince, you were scared, wasn't you? I said, yes, yes, that he said, but I've never seen a black man turn white. <laughs> I thought that was very funny at the time. He made a little light of it. So now by this time, it's hitting ESPN, you know, in the beginning of breaking news. They, got, they cut through football games at the time. It was on a Sunday. And so they, they, some kind of way they got a hold of my mom because my mom saw it on ESPN and she saw, you know, me being carried off the stretcher. And, you know, now I'm the only child, you know, and my mom is like hysterical. And, 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 and so they, they, they was able to get a phone in the lock. I don't, I don't remember ever being a phone in the lock, but some kind of way they got the phone to me. And, and all she wanted to hear was that I said that I was okay. And I was okay. And, and so now I stand up and, and I do feel a little soreness, but not realizing that it was a cracked tibia. So I'm telling Whitey, I can play. I can play. He said, no, 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 you can't play tonight. No, no, no. We go insert Tito Landrum in there. Now, Tito Landrum went in there and I went to four for four that night against Fernando Venezuela. I mean, a lot of people don't realize that, but Tito won the game for us. You know, that was big time. You know, kudos to him, but. I could not put any pressure on it enough to steal a base. You know, I could jog, but I couldn't take off, you know. And so we go in and win that series. Jack Clark hit the big home run off of Needenfear, and now we go in to play the um, Kansas City Royals. Kansas City Royals. And, you know, we was up 3-1 to one that series, man. We was up 3-1. to one. We was, you know, the champagne was already – pouring on our head and they came back they had you know Saberhagen like dominated us you know and we couldn't hit anything you know and so we batted like 118 as a team you know they had Bud Black they had Saberhagen they had Danny Jackson you know so they 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 pitched unbelievable and um it was one play that was that was in that game six where um, Dinkinger made the bad call at first base when Tardwell was covering first base, and um, the guy was out by two feet, and that changed the whole dynamics of the game. But ended up losing the World Series. So uh, every time I see George Brett, he always give me a big high five and show me his World Series ring, and I say, "Yeah, you only won that ring because I wasn't there. That's why <laughs> you weren't there." And the Dinkinger call. Yeah, exactly. Hey, yeah, after that 85 World Series, you'll play in another one in 87. Uh, 1986, Vince Coleman, another 107 bags. Uh, 86, 107 stolen bases. 1987, 109. You'll be the first and I think only player ever to steal 100 bases three years in a row. You got 180 hits that year in 87. Um, you went to your second World Series. You end up losing that one to the Twins, too. And and we talk about it all the time on the, on this podcast and how tough it is not only to get to these World Series, but to win these World Series. It's unbelievable. I'm yeah. sure you, yeah. you, you know as many players as I know, great players that never won that World Series. It just shows how hard. But, you know, I had yeah. – when, when I had Andre Reid on, you know, he went to four Super Bowls in a row, and he lost all four. And he, his right. first thing to me was, Booney, I wouldn't trade it. At least I got to go to four. They're a special place. Uh, talk to me about that first World Series. You weren't able to because of the injury. Uh, 
Walk me through that second World Series. Any different? I know it ended the same way, but what was that like going through that? Well, you know, consistency is the most important word that's associated with, with, with sports, and, and, and you want to minimize the negatives and maximize the positives. And, you know, and I think that's one of the things that we uh, – uh, it was a saying over our locker room that who was going to be the big shooter that day. So every day it was a challenge. It was like it was a World Series game, and that's the way we approached every game. Uh, a lot of things have to go into play where everyone is healthy. You got the starting, uh, the, the pitching, and the and the, and the relief that has to be consistent. And then you have to hit and you have to play great defense. And we did all of that. But sometimes you go up against great hitters, and you you're going against Tom Bernanke and Kirby Puckett, and they were just hot at they feel and the energy playing in that that dome over there at that time, it was just unbelievable. We won all our home games, but they won all their home games. And just unfortunately, they, they played more home games than we did. So, I mean, it was a great battle, great games. I mean, it was uh, all around the board, one of the great experiences. And making it to the World Series, yes, everything has to fall into play. We did everything absolutely well that year. And I, I can't say that the TARP, you know, stopped us from winning that year because I was there. You know, we just – uh, it was just that one final pitch, that one hit, you know, that one defensive play, you know, that propelled them to come out on top. It was a great experience. And, you know, and like you say, once you get there, there's nothing like it. There's no other thing that fits in your mind that, that you want to get back. I want to get back again so much, tried so, so hard to get back. I kind of closely came back in 1995 when I was with – Seattle, and I played with the greatest players that ever played the game, you know, with King Griffey Jr. and Edgar Martinez and, and Tino and Jay Bruno. You know, that was an outstanding team. You knew we was on fire that year. Um, but the energy being in Seattle gave them a big lift. And our motto that year was we refused to lose. Everything was just falling into our place where we beat the Yankees two out of three. And um, <clears throat> we went on and lost to uh, the Indians that year, and right then and there, they had Dennis Martinez. They had a great Alomar. I mean, they had a great team that year. Uh, that that had uh, Charlie Nagy was on that team, and and that's it's funny story that when I got there and I'm facing Charlie Nagy for the first time, and I saw he had the same his his, his delivery to the plate was different than when he was going to first, and I picked that up from Dre Beck. Dre Beck was a pitcher that was with. Pirates at the time, and I saw Charlie Nagy, my first time seeing him, and that was our tip, you know. So I go always revert back to, you know, I'm trying to steal tips and pitches on, you know, like what's going to be to our advantage. But, you know, we just didn't come out for veil that time. But, you know, um, but it was a great experience, great time playing in the World Series, nothing like it. And I, and I think that every ball player's dream is to make it to that point. Because as you can see this year, there's a lot of energy. The whole world is watching. And, and you want to go out and give the fans what they uh, pay their money for, you know. And that's our motto was that. And that was, at least that was my motto, is to give them 110% every time I step on the field. 95, that's Seattle team. I remember I was in Cincinnati. Uh, you were in Seattle. That kind of, that series, Edgar hits the big double. That's the series that yes. kind of uh, ended up, the city voting for Safeco Field, now T-Mobile Park, and get you out of the kingdom. That series was kind of solely responsible for getting that thing done. Pretty cool. Oh, wow. Unbelievable. Yes. I mean, right now, you go to Seattle, that's a great place. I mean, you played there. You know the energy. and You played on great teams there. You guys 
you got to set the record there for 100 and how many games? 20 games? You got 116. 116. That's a lot of games, Vince. And and we didn't, guess what? We didn't get that. We didn't get. Yeah, we didn't get that World Series ring. It just shows how tough they are to get. Um, 88 and 89, you're an all-star in St. Louis. You lead the league again in, in stolen bases. You lead the league six years in a row coming out of the shoot um, through the 90 season. Uh, and I think that year, or in 1989, did you steal 50 bases in a row before you got caught? Yes, that was a 50. And the thing about that, I, Brad, That's I, unbelievable. I couldn't even begin to – I couldn't even begin to tell you that it was a streak that was going on at the time. You know, my motto was just getting on and going. Everybody at the ballpark knew I was going. That was that was that was our, my our strategy. You know, at, at that time, that was in 1989 um, when it was my fifth year, and Ozzy's batting second. You know, so um, and I tease Ozzy all the time. I mean, I made you a 300 hitter, you know, because <laughs> I'm getting on base and he's taking, you know, you get fast balls, but Ozzy and I had a great, great relationship, great rapport where that we had our own signs, you know, where he knew when to take, he knew when I couldn't steal on this guy. And the opposition didn't know that because I gave them the illusion that I was going because it was a one-way lead and I got the biggest lead in the world and the catcher's like fastball, fastball, fastball. And we, if, if, if it was Terry Mulholland, greatest left-handed pitcher that had the great move, great pickoff move, I'm not, I can't steal on this guy. Can't steal on, not even going to attempt to, but he doesn't know that. So now we got a button run on every time, you know. So it was certain pitches that you knew going into that game that who you could steal off of, who you couldn't steal off of, how we're going to execute it, how we can make your at-bat effective. And when I say there's so many effective at-bats because of the run-on base and Ozzy's bunting, if he gets a sacrifice, it doesn't count as a batting average. If he happened to get a base hit, wow, there's another hit. So it was so many things that helped us as a ball club that we knew how to, whatever the score was, whatever the opposition would give us, we would take advantage of it, and that's what made us great. After the 90 season, uh, you leave St. Louis, you go to New York, uh, you have stops in Kansas City, as you mentioned, Seattle. And we were teammates for a minute in 1996. Yeah, I was just a young pup. You were, you were a grizzled <laughs> veteran. But uh, I do remember those days. And, and what a great career you had. 752 stolen bases, 264 careers, your sixth all-time. Uh, and a Cardinals Hall of Famer, and, and and you talked about going back to the ceremonies, and and you're right. There's a few Hall of Fames, I think, in the in the game of baseball that are really kind of sacred, and St. Louis is one of those. You remember getting the phone call uh, when you when you realized that you were going to be inducted into the into the uh, Cardinal Hall of Fame, and you end up going in, I believe, in 2018. You remember getting that phone call, and how cool was that? Uh, I can remember them calling and saying that you was on the ballot and that whole 
town just erupted because they was waiting the previous years. My name was not on the ballot. You know what I mean? So, and, um, when that happened, you know, everybody, you know, because it was, it was fan based, the voting wise, you know, who, uh, how you get in. And, and, and so, you know, I had several phone calls, a lot of phone calls that we voting for you and voting multiple times, whatever, you know? So, but when that happens and then you get the phone call and say, well, yeah, you've been elected to go in. Um, the first congratulations I probably got, well, no, 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 I probably got, I did get, was from Ozzy and well-deserved about time, you know, what I've been waiting for, <laughs> you know, Whitey Herzog call. And that was just a special moment for me and my family to go in there and to have all the fans. It brings back so many memories to see the, the sea of red and white, you know, that, like I say, treated you like royalty. There's no other place in the world that you could go to and be received and receptive. And, you know, when you was a rookie coming up and you would get in your car and you would drive to the ballpark and, you know, the fans will be there to greet you in the parking lot and, 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 and the electricity that when you got on base, it was just so electric was that, you know, when the, when the, I got on base, they would play this one little organ or music with this red bird stretching to one base to another and, you know, they had a commercial during that year, those years, I should say, is that the concession stands just stopped, you know, shut down, you know, because they knew Vince was on base and they knew he was going. It was just a matter of the first or second pitch, you know. So that was the electricity that electrified me, that motivated me, that stimulated me. I mean, you know, so, but not only me, it was just a shot in the arm to our whole team. You know, because they knew that what was expected. If you was my teammate, you loved me. I mean, and, and you rooted for one another. I mean, because those were the things that you 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 kind of like, you know, when you can have something that motivates you. You know, hitting home runs are great. You know, hitting a double is great. You know, but still in the base, it was just something about still in the base that the crowd, the, the energy that brought so much excitement to the game. You know, you don't have to be – I know we probably will, uh, but I just want to touch about, you know, base running. You know, base running, you don't have to be fast to be a great base runner. Just alert, aggressive instincts and heart and gut with no fear. You know, so those are the things that we possess day in and day out because – if you was a pitcher on our team, if you was a catcher on our team, and I say Daryl Porter, you go to Tom Pagnazzi, a Tom Nieto doing my odd days of playing, you was a base runner. What sets base running up is that secondary lead because that set everything else up. Now I can put on a delay steal. I can be ready when the ball in the dirt. I read the ball off the bat, the ball above my eyes. I read it. It's the ball below my eyes. I go, you know, so those are the little things that you worked on day in and day out that made you baseball players. So we would pride ourselves of being a baseball player. You know, so you came to St. Louis and you, you was appreciated. And so they appreciate baseball. So when I got that call to go into the Hall of Fame, I knew they appreciated the way I played the game of baseball. 2015, you worked for the White Sox as a base running instructor. 2017 with the Giants as a – I think you were a rover with the Giants. You worked with the, the base runners and the outfielders. You know, the game is changing. 
Vince, and, and it's really changing now because with it, they're putting microphones in in pitchers' ears, and they're doing, you know, a big part of the game. And I talk about this, me still not being a base stealer, but if I could peek in when I got my lead at first base, maybe I could get a get the pitch. Maybe I could relay it to somebody. Maybe I could know. Okay, if this guy's a one four. Uh, to, to home that pitcher and it's a breaking ball I can steal the bag here so I used to do those little things the game's changing when you take a take a young kid it, what's the first thing when you get down to basics on all right this kid's got some speed we're going to try to make him a base stealer what's the first basics that you teach him well, well, I, I take a kid back to in his little league days you know you know you 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 was a great hitter and you had confidence. It was oozing out of you. You was that little kid, and you was a great hitter. Then you went to little league, and you went to middle school, and you was always that great hitter. You went to high school. You was a great hitter. When you went to USC, you was a great hitter at USC. You were the best hitter on that team. Remember all the confidence you had when you was that great hitter? So once you get to the major leagues, the uh, my, uh, pro ball, the first thing they tell you, don't get picked off. Don't make the first or third out of third base. Don't get double up long line drives. That's the first thing they tell you. That's a don't, how not to. I'm the how-to coach. I'm going to teach you to have the, that confidence. I want that confidence once you get on base. It is oozing out of you where that you're going to feel so confident to know that if I get out there, <clears throat> you don't have to be fast to be a great base player. That's it. Is that you've got to be alert, aggressive, aware. And the instincts, trust your instincts. Trust the God-given ability that you have. That knowing that once I get out there, babe, I have to give you my undivided attention and that just to be in an athletic position to jump off and work on my secondary lead. That is very, very easy. Once I get into my secondary lead, I steal first. Steal first is that they get back on a swing and miss. You know, there's no way a catcher of Molina, as much as he can throw, quick, there's nothing against him. But if he's 90 feet and I'm 10 feet away, if I can just get off and get, work on getting back to first base, then that's I have <clears throat> shown you that I'm in, in aware. My, my awareness is there. I'm prepared to do anything I need to do because that next pitch is going to be in the ball in the dirt. If I got a great secondary lead, I'm going to take that base. No matter if I see white, I'm going. I'm going to make him play a simple game of catch. But now he got to put a time limit on it. And I think when the fear come in is that because I've been told what not to do, how not to. And I don't need a manager or a general manager telling me about a war that I'm going to get penalized because if I make an out on a base, that stifles me from being the exciting player, the d- dynamic player that I can be to put pressure on the opposing team by making them <clears throat> play this simple game of catch, but they got to put a time limit on it. Do not give in to them. Have the confidence that you can go out and disrupt and be effective. And now with you putting the pressure on them, cause them to make mistakes. But you got to have from above your manager, the general manager, and the owner on the same page. And that's what we don't have today. And you mentioned something about, you know, when they said, okay, well, the cybermetrics and analytics and, well, the risk, There's, if he's 1-4 to the plate. You know, the, 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 the analytics, that's confirmation. That's great. I mean, but that's not what I'm stealing off of his time. 
I'm still looking for a tip, a tendency, a flaw that he may have that's going to give me that. I, I, you can't steal off of everybody. But it's one thing that I know that I can <clears throat> guard against is that if I, if, if, I can channel my speed. I can channel my hustle. I can channel my termination. You know, like that's one thing that I know that I can do if I'm – put out there at that position because runs become premium once I get on base. Once I'm on base, I'm in scoring position, knowing that I don't – I can – when the ball is hit on the ground, I can take out the second baseman. That puts me in in, in, uh, in, in, in scoring position there. You know, once I'm in scoring position, now a lot of times, you know, when I'm at second base, I'm not still in the base. I'm watching the catcher sign. And you know, as a middle infielder, they go with the first sign after the out, the pump system, or whatever the second sign may be. But I have to figure that. What verifies that is that the catcher sets up in the middle of the plate. There's no way he goes set up on the corners when there's the off-speed pitches. So that verifies it by looking at the signs. When I see that the catcher sits up in the middle of the plate and it is off-speed pitch, but if he sets up on the corners, they go be fastballs. So I equate all that into play of how I take a base dealer and I'm teaching him the dynamics of how to look for certain tips. If a pitcher is on second base and he's one looking, if he one looks, he's a creature of habit. He's going to do it every time. So it's not one thing that I would teach a base dealer. It's several different things, but he has to be in tune with it and he has to have the permission from his manager is that if you allow it to get out there and take that risk and chances and he won't be penalized for it. So yes, it was very hard when I was coaching and teaching because if, if, if the manager is not going to allow for him to take that risk and wait for him to be told when to do it. And see, that's the thing about a base dealer. He cannot be told, he can't be given a sign he got to get out there and say, okay, every pitch, I'm prepared to steal this base on this particular pitch. That's a base stealer. Now, guys that steal bases, they look for certain pitches. They look for tips, you know, where they're, they're pitch count-wise. I mean, so there's so, so, so many different categories that you take a dedicated base stealer and you take him through the ABCs of how to be effective day in and day out. You're right, though. Even for guys like me that would steal 10, 15 bases, it's like <clears throat> as soon as my skipper gave me that green light, and now he trusted me because he knew uh, in, in a situation where I shouldn't be running, he trusted me enough that I wasn't going to be running. But I also, when he'd tell me to steal, you know, they get a lot of times with those guys that don't steal a lot of bases, they're told when to steal. Well, we're right. not used to doing that, and now all of a sudden the pressure's on. i got to go on this particular pitch. As I got older and, and a little more of a veteran, my managers would trust me to say, I had the green light. That doesn't mean I was going to steal a lot of bases. It just meant when I when I went, they trusted me enough that I was probably going to make it. The pitchers really uh, slow to home or they weren't paying attention. So many intricacies right. in, in base running, and it's, and it's so cool. Uh, I know you got to run. I'm going to let you out of there, but could you think you could have played in the NFL if you went that route? You know what? Being a punter, place kicker would have been easy. I mean, I, I look back when that guy, when I was with Washington Redskins, and he averaged 32 yards a year that year. My average in college was like 44 yards, and I was, uh, I, I love punting. I love punting. Being a wide receiver, 
Uh, you had to do a lot of homework. You had to know the defensive. You had to know when they was in man-to-man or zone. If you didn't, you asked Renato Nehemiah. He was fast, but he didn't know how to read a zone or man-to-man. And if you get caught going across that middle and then man-to-man in the <laughs> – your, your job as a football player is to hit them before they hit you. Of course, there was no doubt in my mind. I could have been – you know, I was fast enough, but now you're good with a good quarterback, and now you got to be on the same page and, and knowing the system. Um, but longevity-wise, uh, you take that risk, uh, you know, I wouldn't trade it in for the world, you know, to play baseball. I mean, because, you know, you play 15 to 20 years, and, and you can make a lot, nice living and, um, and take care of your family and uh, – in football, that's not guaranteed. Baseball is guaranteed. So um, I, I, I love my decision that I made of playing uh, Major League Baseball and uh, wouldn't trade it for the world. Well, Vince Coleman, I loved it. As a kid, I remember, you know, and, and even we played together and, and we live in the same area. But uh, as a kid, yeah. I remember on those Cardinal team, oh, man, Vince Coleman, he's going to steal base every time he gets out there. But you're right there in, in in the history of baseball with the greatest, the greatest of all time to do it with Ricky. And, and people think, I think of Lou Brock, you mentioned Rock Reigns, who we had on the program, these great elite base stealers and and you're right there with them like i said six all time it's been a pleasure having you on the show i appreciate you coming on have a great round today by the way and uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm humble i'm humble and honored to be on your show you know it's it's great to sit down and talk about you know memories and 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 and, and, and things that excited you you can tell how the excitement and abortion when you talk about you know, the great Lou Brock, or Murray Will that just passed away, you know, may they rest in peace. And, you know, Ricky Henderson is a, do, uh, a dear friend, you know, and we became friends, you know. I mean, that was the great part about it. Lou, I, got, I had the pleasure of, of being in the locker room every day with Lou Brock, or Bob Gibson, or Red Chain Deans, you know, so Sam Musial, you know, that, that, that was an honor in itself just to walk in the locker room every day. You know, you can see these guys, you know. And then, you know, Murray Wills was a great, great dear friend, and you get the chance to talk to him. And, you know, whenever I went out to L.A. and, you know, he shared some stories with me about base stealing. And, and, and Ricky, the reason I signed with my agent was because of Ricky. He had um, Lou Brock and Ricky, and so I signed with uh, my, my agent that was out of St. Louis. And, and, and so we became great friends. You know, you got the, we started wearing Mizuno shoes together. And, and uh, then I would uh, go out and hang out with Ricky. And, you know, I mean, go out, when I say hang out, go over to visit with him and spend time and go have dinner and spend time with Ricky. You know, so that was, that was fun. And I think that's the advantage you have playing baseball opposed to football. I mean, because if you go into every town you go into, you spend three or four days and you can go out and have dinner and, and get to know the person, you know, and, and, and share some time, some locker room time with them, you know, so it's been honoring. Well, Vince, thanks. Have a great round. And as we do each and every Boone podcast at the end of the podcast is we kick it back to the voice of the podcast. And that voice is Dan Levy. Dan? That's going to do it for the Brett Boone podcast. My name is Dan Levy, the technical director, producer, voice of the Boone podcast. EP, executive producer, Rich Herrera, digital. All gets uploaded by Liz Landry. Do us a favor. Share the Boone podcast. Neighbors and friends and all those that love sports, make sure you subscribe. 
never miss an episode. And while you're at it, give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on The Boone Podcast, he is Brett Boone. You can find him on social media at the Boone 29 I'm Dan Levy, B-A-S-S on air. That is base on air, all of my social medias. Thanks for listening. We'll do it again soon. Have a great one.